Uh, good morning. So good to see everybody today. Yeah, be sure you don't forget about next week being daylight savings time. And uh, <clears throat> it's usually a good weekend because that's when, if anybody misses that, they're just going to show up early for church. It's in the springtime that if they miss it, they just miss it all together. But not only is it daylight savings time, it is also opening weekend for deer season. And uh, so there's a, some of you whom uh, we just want to say uh, bless you. We'll see you in January. Um, see you for a while. You know, some people get all judgmental about when people miss deer hunt, miss church because they're deer hunting. I hope you don't see anything. I hope your gun doesn't work if you're going to miss church. Well, that, that's counterproductive. What we need to be doing is playing for all kinds of blessings that they'll fill their tags early because then they'll be back. They can't go out anymore once they're. So if, if they don't see anything, we may not see until January. So y'all pray for the deer hunters. <laughs> if you have your Bibles, open up to Luke chapter 15. <clears throat> Last week, we uh, began a series of messages that I'm going to be giving over the next few weeks about shame. Because of the time this morning, I'm not going to really recap anything I went over last week. So if you missed it, I do encourage you to, to go back and listen to that. Uh, you can do that even either directly on the church website or on uh, iTunes uh, podcast or just call the office and you can have a free copy of it on, on CD. Uh, the text we're going to be looking at this morning is one that I'm sure all of us are familiar with. It's the parable of the prodigal son, but we're actually going to be looking at the last part of the story. So let's all stand together as we look at this, and we're going to start with verse 25. Jesus is telling this story, and he says, Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to him, father, look, for so many years I have been serving you and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for the truth and the promises that we have in this this story here, God, that's, that's... Lord, it is one that is so familiar to us, but God, I pray that today we would see this in ways that we never have before, that we would get something out of this story that um, we may have missed in the past. God, I'm believing that today is a turning point in somebody's life, and so I'm asking you to reveal yourself. God, we would have an encounter with you this morning that changes us forever. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. The sport of dog racing can be traced back to ancient Greece, but the version that we know today really took off in 1919 when a man named Oliver Smith invented a realistic mechanical rabbit that the dogs could chase around the track. 
Of course, thoroughbred greyhounds are the breed of choice because of two qualities that they possess at a very high level that is essential for dog racing. And those qualities are speed and tenacity. As soon as the dogs are locked into the gates, the mechanically propelled rabbit sprints forward. The dogs are released and they blast out of their confinement at full throttle. They reach speeds of up to 40 miles an hour. And when they're running, these dogs possess amazing focus as there is just one thing going through their small brains, and that is get that rabbit. At the end of the race, somebody's dog wins, somebody's dog loses. Some people make a lot of money betting on the winning dog. Most others lose all their money. Some owners will give their dogs a treat. Another dog will win a trophy or a medal to display in their doghouse. But no matter what, there is one thing that is for certain every time. Nobody gets the rabbit. Greyhounds are one of the fastest animals on the planet, but what they possess in speed, apparently they lack in brains. I mean, you'd think that after chasing this rabbit time and time again that nobody ever gets that they'd eventually figure it out and stop chasing it. But no, every time they line up again, but they're certain that this time is going to be the time that they get it. But they never do. In fact, that's why they wear the muzzles around their nose and mouth, it's not because they're mean dogs and they're afraid that someone may get bit by them. It's because during that race, they are so focused on that rabbit and and, and built up with so much anxiety of sinking their teeth into that little creature that at the end of the race, when the rabbit disappears, they've got all this bent-up energy and frustration and anticipation. They just knew they were going to be able to sink their teeth into that rabbit. And so now they've got to sink their teeth into something. And so they release all this bent-up energy and frustration and then begin biting one another. It's a pretty sad situation if you think about it. Dogs continually chase after a fake rabbit that they never catch And then lash out at each other every time they fail. What a great picture of the society that we live in. People everywhere chase elusive rabbits that they'll never catch. And what keeps them chasing it over and over, time after time, is shame. Shame is what drives us. The reason we run so hard when we are ashamed is because we're desperate for love and affection and affirmation and acceptance. From the first gasp of air into our lungs when we exit the womb to the last breath we take when we are lying on our deathbeds, we crave and need love just as much as we need water to live. And the need is so massive, we'll do just about anything to get it. That drive is so strong that we'll pay just about any price to have it. If you're not aware of just how far you'll go for love, chances are somebody else is. Somebody has figured out that they can get you to run 
if the rabbit of love is dangled out in front of you. The rabbit comes in different shapes and sizes. It may be the rabbit of approval, the rabbit of affection, affirmation, acceptance, whatever you never got that you desperately crave. But no matter how hard you tried, no matter how good a little boy or girl you were, the affirmation you needed was never fully given. It was withheld so that you would keep running, and you did, and you've been running ever since. It may have been withheld because the ones that you needed it from just didn't have it. It may have been withheld because of ignorance. Oh, we better not praise little Johnny too much. It may go to his head. It may have been withheld because those that you needed it from, their energy was taken up by some kind of addiction that they had for so long. It may have been withheld because it was never there in the first place. You were abandoned by the ones that you needed it from the most. Or it might have been withheld because that's the only way that they knew. They had run after rabbits their whole life, and now it was your turn to learn how to run. I talked last week about how the epidemic of absent fathers in our society has just created this massive amount of shame in our culture, and not just absent physically, but absent from giving their family everything that they need from a father. But for whatever reasons, people everywhere have tried to catch up to love, but despite their best efforts, millions of people have never tasted the real thing. So as soon as something that just looks like it might be it comes by, they latch on to it as quick as they can. And end up getting hurt even more. First point, if you're following along in your notes, is this. When love is absent, shame fills the void. Shame is that painful feeling that there is some flaw in you that keeps you from catching the rabbit. And so you just try harder and harder. And when you don't get it, you'll lash out. Just like those greyhounds do. The thing is, we all want people under our influence to do good. Teachers want their students to learn. Parents want their children to behave. Preachers want their church members to to actually act and live like Christians. Our culture exists under an atmosphere of shame. And it's everywhere because it actually works. I mean, shame can get students to make straight A's. It can get children in the home to behave. Shame can get church members to give more money and volunteer more time. There may be some of you here this morning that you may be here in church for the first time in a long time. Or maybe you just started coming for the first time in a long time. You used to go, but you just couldn't deal with the shame anymore. It's like every sermon that you heard, every time you went to church, you left just feeling more and more condemnation. Because I'm telling you, preachers are pretty good about dangling the rabbit. 
If you just try harder and do more, God will bless you. God will like you more. The more you mess up, the more God is going to withhold his love and his blessings. My gosh, you chase enough rabbits out there in the world. Lord knows you don't need another, especially in the church. And so you just quit coming. Who wouldn't? A person can only handle so much of that. Next point. People use shame to motivate others because they don't know the ways of God. God never uses shame to motivate us. He never tries to motivate by withholding any of his love or any good thing from us. I want to show you a powerful verse in the Bible that will be up on the screen. It's Genesis one twenty-eight. Says God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Say, so what's so powerful about that? Does God want us to be fruitful in life? Yes, He does. Does He want us to achieve great things? Absolutely. Does God bless people because they are fruitful and because they achieve great things? Absolutely not. Look at the sequence in this verse again. God first, first blessed Adam and Eve, and then he told them to go out and do what he wanted them to do. The blessing came first. The affirmation of their worth Their acceptance, their love from God did not hinge on how obedient they were. Instead, their obedience came as a result of how much they knew they were loved and accepted and approved by the Father. We see this same thing again in Genesis chapter 6. It's the beginning of the story of Noah where God says he looked down and saw that the wickedness of man was Great on the earth. Verse 8 and 9 says this. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Now, we usually assume that Noah found favor with God because he was righteous. It's like we read verse 8. And says that God found favor with Noah, and then we assume that verse 9 is explaining why Noah had God's favor. But that's not what it says. God's favor came first, and then Noah's righteousness. Listen, God didn't find favor with Noah because he was righteous. Noah was righteous because he had God's favor. Big difference between the two. It wasn't something that Noah earned. It was just a a loving gift from a sovereign God. He loved Noah. He had favor on Noah. Why? What did Noah, Noah do? Nothing. It was just because. A lot of time God does something just because. He's God and he can. He doesn't need a reason from us to be able to do anything. And I know that this just doesn't make sense, especially to an orphan mind, because an orphan always assumes that love has to be earned. And 
what I'm about to say next isn't in your notes, but it'd probably be good to write it down. Keep this in mind. An orphan will do in order to get. A son will do because he knows what he has. In other words, an orphan will think, well, I better do this so that I can get this. But a son and a daughter who understands the father's love says, because I have this, I can now do this. I'm motivated out of what I have, not out of what I think I don't. Now, some people will say that a little bit of shame is good because it does motivate us to change. And yes, shame can be very effective at changing our behavior, but it does absolutely nothing to change our heart. Next point, some of you really need to hear this. God's not after your good behavior. He's after your heart. And if he can get your heart, then the behavior will take care of itself. Like I've said many times, what we do on the outside is a reflection of our condition on the inside. If God wants you to change, he's not going to use shame to do that. Although it may change your behavior, at least for a time, shame will absolutely damage your heart. If God wants us to change, he's not going to use shame. He is going to use conviction. And there is a world of difference between godly conviction and demonic shame. Many Christians seem to be confused between the two. But shame condemns and binds us. While conviction heals and frees us. And recognizing the difference between the two is as fundamental as recognizing the difference between the voice of God and the voice of Satan. The voice of Satan always contains a poisonous tone of shame. The Bible calls him the accuser of the brethren. He accuses. Shame on you. God doesn't accuse. He convicts. And his voice of conviction is filled with love rather than shame. The story we read here in Luke 15 tells the story of three sons. And in the story, we see the difference between godly conviction and demonic shame. Most of us, I'm sure, are familiar with this story. Man had two sons, the younger of which wanted his inheritance early. And the father gave it to him, and he went out and absolutely squandered every bit of it on selfish and sinful living. That's where he found himself without anything, destitute and desperate. All he could do was help somebody feed their pigs. And he looked down at the feed that he was giving them and wishing that he could, he could even just eat that, eat pig feed. He was so desperate. Now watch the process of conviction, starting in verse 17. It says, but when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger? I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. First, he recognizes his own folly. 
And in coming to his senses, it was the knowledge of the father's wealth compared to the poverty of his own sin-caused condition that began his process of repentance. When we encounter the glory and the greatness of God, we are immediately made aware of our own inadequacy in light of that. When the prophet received the vision in Isaiah chapter 6 of being before the glorious throne of God, his immediate reaction was, Woe is me, for I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. The rebellious son, recognizing his own folly, he admitted that he was not worthy to be called his father's son, but he would return to him as a servant. Now, why would this be considered an expression of healthy conviction rather than shame. It's simple. Next point in your notes. Conviction always moves us back to the Father. To say, I am not worthy, I will stay away from my Father, is shame. But to say, I am not worthy, I will go to my Father, that's conviction. Any thought that makes you want to hide from God or godly people, is not a thought inspired by the Holy Spirit. It is a thought born straight from the pits of hell itself. Shame always causes us to feel more distant from God. Conviction always brings us closer to God. And so the conviction felt by the younger brother carries him back to the father And instead of being greeted with anger and disappointment and condemnation and rejection, which is what shame always expects the reaction to be, he experienced his father's love more profoundly than he could have ever imagined. The father lavishes unbelievable grace on his repentant son. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Pick up in verse 22. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fatted calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Did you catch that last part? They began to celebrate. The father, the son, and anyone else who would join the party. Shame-based families rarely celebrate. A straight A on the report card might get a pat on the head, but if just one B is in there, then it's questioned as being any real achievement. The very nature of the kingdom of God is celebration. The Bible uh, says that God's kingdom is compared to a wedding party, which was the greatest of Middle Eastern celebrations. Next point, conviction and repentance leads to celebration. Shame never invites or allows us to celebrate. We're too busy brooding over our own inadequacy to join the party. The older brother in the story provides a dramatic contrast to the younger. He's a hard-driving performer, the one that society admires. 
because he's hardworking and he pleases others. And he is chasing a rabbit because he's full of shame. Look at it. Verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. While the sinful younger son ran to the father and fell in his embrace, the hardworking second son was unable to even speak directly to his father. He sent somebody else to do it. The fear of rejection keeps shame-based people at a distance. And then the father comes out to his son. And look what the son says again. In verse 29, But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. Can you hear it? It was a statement of shame and rejection disguised as criticism of the father. Shame causes us to hide our feelings of unworthiness by putting others down. If you ever find yourself making fun of others or Anytime you talk about somebody else, it's usually just pointing out the bad things about them, the bad things they did. Subconsciously, you're, you're just trying to make yourself look better, but it doesn't work. What you actually do is expose your own shame. And it would do you so much good to just recognize that and allow Jesus to heal that before you go any further in life. So I'm telling you right now, shame is not something that anyone outgrows. It is not something that disappears with time. It's something that only Jesus can take away. If you can't enjoy someone else's success, it's because you don't feel successful yourself. The son said, all these years I've been serving you and never neglected a command of yours. Last point, and this is a big one. Shame can't comprehend the father's love because it assumes that love is earned. In the last two verses, the father said to him, son... You have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. All that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live, was lost and has been found. I'm sure there are some of you here today because they're all over. People who are unable to receive God's love because you've been trying so hard to earn it. You've been chasing the rabbit that religion dangles in front of you. 
Instead of just believing and trusted in the good news that the gospel announces to you. There was a time in my life before I encountered the unbelievable grace of God and really began to understand what his love meant that every time I read this story I seemed to sympathize more with the older brother and feel myself taking up an offense for him and thinking yeah he's right what about him why haven't you ever thrown him a party like that maybe some of you do the same thing and it's really because shame in us feeds off of the shame in others It demands justice and fairness. The older brother, full of shame, but trying so hard to look worthy, is unable to even enjoy the party that is right under his nose. Earlier I said that this parable was about three sons. The first son, the rebellious sinner who was broken by conviction, fell into his father's arms and found celebration in his repentance. The second son, who is the dutiful performer, bound by shame, isolated from his father's affection, who never joined the party. The third son, he's the one who's telling the story. He's the son who performed his very first miracle. Out of all the places it could have been at a wedding party, the greatest celebration there was. The son who is obedient, not for shame, but for the joy that was set before him. The son who is rejected by those he came to serve, but never left the father's embrace. Then, in one awful moment, the third son hung on a wooden cross in the most shameful of positions a human could be. Crucifixion was not only devised to be the most painful form of punishment, but also to be the most shameful form of punishment. They intended to inflict as much humiliation and shame on the accused as possible. And so Jesus hung there, Not with a loincloth on like we always see in movies and pictures, but completely naked in a public place, helpless, being spit on and mocked. And drowning in his own blood, he cried out, Father, why have you forsaken me? And the answer would come, But not in that moment. The answer would be, I had to forsake you so that I wouldn't have to forsake all others. The third song hung on that cross bearing not only the guilt of our shame, I mean the guilt of our sin, but also the agony of our shame. In that moment, as he hung between heaven and earth, Forsaken by the father, he was both the grotesquely sinful younger son and the dutiful, slaving older son. 
For a moment, he hung there like an unforgiven younger brother and an uninvited, shameful older brother until he breathed his last breath, crying out, It is finished. The required payment for your sin had been paid in full. The removal of your shame had been completed. Jesus was shamed on the cross so that you wouldn't have to bear shame yourself. There's some of you here today who may be able to relate to the younger son. You've been squandering everything God has given you in life and wasting it on selfish and sinful living. And you know because of this tinge of conviction that you are feeling right now that something's got to change. You cannot continue living this way. Maybe you've been close to God in the past, but you've been running away from him. Like the father in the story, I'm telling you, he's been looking, watching every day, waiting for your return. Waiting to run out and meet you in a huge embrace. Today can be the day you encounter his unbelievable grace. Others of you may be able to relate more to the older brother. You've been chasing rabbits, striving and trying so hard to get what you never had. The shame of your past has caused you to run after that affection and affirmation and acceptance and love. The longing of your heart is to hear the words of a father say, In you I am well pleased. You've been trying to earn those words. With all your good behavior. And you're just about burnt out. God wants you to stop chasing those rabbits. And turn around and run to him. Run to daddy. And finally there may be some of you who. Have never heard this before. Oh, you've been in church. You've heard the story of the prodigal son. You've heard plenty of religion and all that you must do in order to make God happy and all that you must not do in order to keep him from being mad at you. But this is the first time you've heard the gospel like this and it's touching something inside of you. Like something wants to wake up that's been Asleep for so long, but you're not sure you can fully trust it. It sounds just a little too good to be true. I'm telling you right now that if you do trust it, the best way I can describe encountering God's unbelievable grace and unconditional love is like coming up for a breath of fresh air after being underwater for so long. You've just been weighted down in condemnation and frustration. And then all of a sudden, (gasps) and your whole life changes. You start seeing things more clearly than you ever have before. I'm telling you right now, he's a good father can be trusted.
Some of you, because of the experience that you had with your earthly father, you can't fully comprehend that term, good father. We're going to be talking more about that as we go through this series. Because he wants you to know him as a good father. He wants you to find everything that you never got from yours in him. He wants you to trust him. So come on home. It's time to join the party. Let's pray. God, you are so good. And Lord, I know that you are speaking to individuals in this place right now. Lord, just bring in that gentle voice of conviction that you love them too much to allow them to go any further with this shame any further with this life that they've been living apart from you. And Lord, I pray that you would just use that conviction to draw them into your love and your grace. Lord, I pray that those rabbits that people have been chasing after to no avail, that today would be the end of their chasing. Because they found all that they've been looking for in you. So Holy Spirit, I'm asking you to come and do what only you can do. Change our hearts. Renew our minds. our, Our complete way of thinking. Complete way of viewing the Father. So Lord, have your way. Let your will be done in the remainder of this time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.